I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and I'll be reading this morning verses 16 through 26. Please give your full attention to God's inerrant word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As I told you last week, we're taking a break from our series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes for just a few weeks to look at some passages of scripture that spell out some of the things that are most important to us as a congregation of God's people, Oakwood Presbyterian Church. These are passages that highlight some of the things that define who we understand ourselves to be. The motto that you see on the front of our bulletin says that we want growing roots, bearing fruit, and branching out. And in that, we have that image of a tree, a healthy, vibrant, growing tree that is so often an image of Scripture of what it means to be a healthy disciple or a healthy congregation of God's people. Just as a healthy forest is made up of healthy trees, so we have churches that are healthy and strong being made up of healthy and strong disciples. Using the language of Isaiah 61, which is a passage very close to the hearts of the leadership, it says that we are to long to be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Last week we looked at Psalm 1, and we saw that this kind of discipleship, this healthy, strong, vital, vibrant discipleship, begins by being like a tree planted by streams of water. And we saw that what Psalm 1 was pointing us to was the Word of God. That we need to delight in the Word of God. We need to meditate in the Word of God. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God as a beginning, as a foundation to becoming healthy, vibrant, fruitful 
trees in God's forest. Well, this week we're going to look at the next stage of growth. Once the roots are in place, once you have a strong system of roots in place, what's the next stage? Well, it's about fruit. In Psalm 1, the language of Psalm 1, it's like becoming like a tree that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In other words, if your roots are strong and you're committed to knowing and understanding and applying and living out and even teaching the Word of God, then your life should produce, in a very organic way, fruit that is pleasing to the Lord. It's what Paul calls here in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But you and I know that it's not a mechanical process. In other words, committing yourself to serious study and meditation upon the Word of God, knowing it in depth, does not guarantee that you're going to bear fruit. I've been kind of shaken lately by the moral failure of fellow pastors that I know, and that I, some that I know personally, some that I hear of, that have national prominence. These are men who believe in the full authority of the Word of God and have committed their lives to not only knowing it, not only applying it to themselves, but teaching it to others and preaching it. Some of them have become very well-known as a result. But as it has happened many times throughout the history of the church, some of these prominent leaders fall. They commit scandalous sins, and they lose their ministries, and they bring damage to the cause of Christ's church and to its testimony. But to be honest with you, as I, most of my life, when I would see those kind of moral failures by, on the part of pastors and other ministry leaders, it tended to be in places away, far away, in churches that I felt they typically those kind of failures happen in churches where the priorities were wrong, where the commitment to Scripture was weak or distorted. What's really been troubling to me over the last couple of years is it's been in my own theological circles that I'm seeing failures. Men in my own denomination, even a couple of them in my own presbytery, men that I know and cared about. How can this be? If strong roots draw upon the water of life of the word of God, how can it not produce fruit? What's missing in so many cases? Where does righteousness come from? Well, this whole question is nothing new. The whole dilemma of righteousness in the church is nothing new. It's been around since the very beginning. The Galatian churches that Paul is writing this letter to were having disputes. Matter of fact, there's a lot of turmoil over just what it meant to be righteous in the sight of God. Paul had come into that area, which we now know today as Turkey. It was called Asia Minor in that day. He went into that area preaching the gospel. His whole ministry was about one central message, that God is holy, God has created us all, and we have sinned against God. We have all sinned greatly against him and are under his wrath and condemnation. But our creator, this holy and just God, has sent his own eternal son into the world. And his son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life among us. 
And then he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. And there on the cross, he not only with, 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 uh, stood the punishment of men, but he underwent the wrath of God. God the Father turned his back upon him and poured out his wrath upon him, and he endured the eternity of hell that you and I deserve as he hung in our place on the cross. And then having died and having offered his own blood as an atonement for our sin, he was raised from the dead, having conquered sin and death, and he is now seated at the right hand of God as Lord over all. That was the message that Paul preached. And the implication of that message was that righteousness is not something that we achieve in the sight of this holy God, but righteousness is a gift. That the way to be seen as righteous in the sight of a holy God is to have the blood of Christ cover our sin, take away our guilt and shame, and to give us the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness. And it's all by grace. That's what Paul taught. Which led to a very practical dilemma to the, for the churches in Galatia as well as in the churches today. And it's very simple. All of our sins, if you believe in Jesus Christ, all of your sins, past, in the present, and in the future, every single one of them was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and punished and paid for once and for all. Every sin you have committed, you are committing, and will commit is paid for. Which leads to the question, why be righteous then? Why bother? Everything I do wrong is already paid for. It's like a blank check, isn't it? Well, that's what the Judaizers seized upon. The Judaizers were professing Christians from a Jewish background who had a very high view of the Old Testament law. And they followed Paul after Paul had left from establishing the churches in Galatia. They, these false teachers followed him into the churches and started stirring up trouble. And they started saying, you know, this gospel that Paul is preaching, there's a big problem with that gospel. It's going to lead to sin. People aren't going to do what's right. They're, they're going to stay in their sins. They're going to stay in darkness and wickedness because of what Paul's teaching. And so they said, yes, it's good to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you still have to keep the law. And if you don't keep the law, you're not saved. Totally contradicting the heart of what Paul preached. And that's what Paul's addressing here. And from what we know of the area where the Galatian churches were and what we know from the early church, there was good concern for these Judaizers, good reason for the concern of these Judaizers, because that culture was wicked, it was dark, it was full of lust and pagan religion. And many of the professing Christians had not, the Gentile Christians in particular, had not broken with their old ways. They're still living in sin. And so Paul writes this letter to address both crowds, the Judaizers and those who thought that being forgiven meant you can live any way you want to live. He addresses it, he starts out, look at the very first verse of chapter 5. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now what he says there could apply to both those living in sin and those preaching that you have to keep the law. And so he begins by addressing the legalist. And he says to the legalists in the beginning of chapter 5, we are free from the law in the sense of meeting its requirements in order to be accepted by God. We are not under the law as a means of knowing God, as a means of eternal life. 
we are not required to keep the law in order to know God. He makes it very clear. Let me give you just a couple of verses. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness. That was his word to the legalists. But then he turns to the Christians that are living, claiming to be Christians, but living in open and scandalous sin. And he says to them that being free from the law as a means of salvation doesn't mean that we are free to sin. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, throughout history, this has been a huge issue in the church. When it comes to pursuing righteousness as professing Christians, how do we avoid, as we follow this path of righteousness laid out before us in God's word, how do we avoid falling off the cliff on one side of the path into legalism, of acting and living as though our keeping of the law is what maintains our relationship with God? And on the other hand, how do we keep from falling off the cliff on the other side of the path into what we call antinomianism? The word nomos in Greek means law, and so antinomianism means against the law. In other words, the law doesn't apply to me in any way. I can live any way I want to live. I can live in licentiousness and still claim forgiveness of Christ and a relationship with God. How do we avoid both tragic, false gospels that have plagued the church throughout its ages? And that's what Paul is addressing here in Galatians 5. And we see this issue in our own day. If you've ever been out searching for a church, looking for what you'd call a good church, you'll find churches that have good theology, but that tend towards legalism. Either subtly or blatantly projecting a code of conduct about how you must talk, what you must look like, how you must act in order to be accepted as a Christian in that fellowship. On the other hand, you'll go into many churches that have good, sound theology, but they tend towards antinomianism. In other words, they seem to relish their freedom from the law in order to look just like the world. As a matter of fact, they pat themselves on the back. The more their attitudes and behaviors reflect the attitudes and behaviors of the world around. How do we avoid both those errors and still hold to the truth of the gospel? It's the key to spiritual health in a church. How does the fruit of the Spirit grow? Where does righteousness come from? Well, Paul, in this passage, says that both legalism and antinomianism are distortions of the gospel. Matter of fact, to the point that they're false gospels. And he presents a third way. And this is so crucial. This is one of the keys to the Christian life, is understanding what Paul says, beginning in verse 16, is the path to true righteousness in the sight of God. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I have spent a lifetime so far as a Christian trying to understand what Paul means there. It's deep. It's mysterious. It's spiritual. It's profound. And it's life-changing. This is God's way to produce holiness in the lives of his people. It's what I would call, and I want this phrase to stick with you today, it's what I would call relational righteousness. 
relational righteousness. That's where you keep the law of God. You do what the law of God says because of who you are and whose you are. It's doing the right thing. It's being good because of who you are and to whom you belong. That's relational righteousness, and that's what Paul always calls us to. When Paul talks about obedience, and he talks about nobody preached the gospel more clearly than the Apostle Paul, but Paul, in his letters, talks an awful lot about our need to be obedient. But when he talks about obedience, he always does it in the context of regeneration, of our new nature, of what we call being born again, of being born again to a new relationship with God, of being a new creation. That is our self-image as believers, that we are new creations in Christ. Now that doesn't mean when you're born again, your old desires are not immediately removed from you. But you have a new nature. You are not what you used to be. You have a spiritual life. You have your eyes open. You have your ears open. Your heart is now beating with love for God, a desire to be like God, to walk in the ways of Christ, to do what God wills for you to do. And you begin, once you're born again, you begin more and more to despise the ways of sin, your old ways, the things that dishonor Christ, the things that enslave you, the things of this world. Paul calls it the flesh, and that the flesh, what when Paul calls, speaks of our flesh, he's speaking about our nature we're born with, the old nature, the old man. As he spells out more clearly through the book of Romans, that old nature, that flesh, is incapable of loving God. Matter of fact, Romans says it's hostile to God. It loves self more than anything else, and it loves the pleasures of sin and doesn't mind being enslaved to sin. That's the flesh. That's the old nature. Now, in that old nature, we we may say we love God. We may say we believe. We may go to church. We may do all kinds of things that look good on the surface, but at the heart of it, we love self and not God. That's the flesh. I'm sure most of you have heard of the famous Russian scientist Ivan Pavlov. He's most known for his teaching in conditioning, which is where he showed us how we respond to things in our environment, different stimuli in our environment, how that can be conditioned by association. And of course, the famous experiment he's known for is by ringing a bell every time he fed his dog his supper, he began to associate the sound of the bell with supper. And it got to the point that He had conditioned the response so much that he could actually ring the bell and the dog would begin to salivate even though there was no food in sight. And that was doesn't sound all that profound to me, but in his day and time, that was profound. Well, I was thinking of that experiment and I saw a picture just this week. It said, at at the top of the picture, it said, little known failures from scientific history. At the bottom of the picture, it said, Pavlov's cat. And the picture was Pavlov furiously ringing a bell and the cat sitting there ignoring him and licking his paw. (laughs) 
As I saw that picture, I was reminded of what the prophet Jeremiah said. He said, a leopard can't change its spots. Neither can you who do evil do good. That's our state apart from God's grace. That's being in the flesh. And then Paul goes on to describe here the works of the flesh. What do those self-centered, dark desires within us produce in the flesh? And he gives that list in verses 19 through 21. In that list, it's a long list. Paul doesn't list every kind of sin. Matter of fact, he leaves out a couple of key ones like murder and stealing. His intention wasn't to be exhaustive. I think actually his intention was no doubt to highlight particular sins that were relevant to the Galatian churches. One reason I know that for sure is because he lists eight different types of sin that all describe sins of broken relationships. And we know from the book of Galatians that there was fighting, infighting going on among the Christians there. But there's basically, he lists four kinds of sins. And as you look at that list, not only were they incredibly relevant to the Galatian churches, they're incredibly relevant today to our churches. Four types of sin he lists. Sexual sins, all types of sexual sins. Secondly, false religion. Thirdly, those sins that break relationships. And then the fourth category are sins of indulgence or overindulgence. Do you notice what he does right after he makes that list of the works of the flesh, of what the old nature produces? He gives a warning to the antinomian. This is what he says. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but that I wince when I read that because I'm guilty of all those sins to one degree or another, at least in mind. What does he mean that those who do those sins will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what he's saying in this context is if those sins characterize your nature, then you are undoubtedly not born again. That's what he's saying. That if the sins that he lists are characteristic of your nature, it no doubt means that you're not truly born again. You cannot have assurance of salvation while your heart is characterized by the kinds of sins that are described in that list. We all commit those sins, but those are against our new nature, not according to our new nature. And so then Paul goes on to list the fruit of the Spirit. What a beautiful list it is. Verses 22 and 23. This is a description of our new, born-again nature. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Do you realize that, that what that describes, those are the attitudes and actions that the law requires of us. That's what the law is about. It's all about those characteristics. Those are the attitudes and actions that give our new nature, our new heart, that he has given to us as an act of sovereign grace. Those are the attitudes and actions that give us pleasure, that bring satisfaction and joy to life. And you know what? Those attitudes and actions portrayed in that list are the attitudes and actions of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's why... The believer who says in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. He's not saying, Oh, how I love your law because it makes me feel like such a dirty, rotten sinner. He's saying, I love your law because it's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of perfection. It's a picture of the holiness of God. It's what I want more than anything else. Oh, how I love your law. In verse 17, Paul goes on to say, For the desires of the flesh 
are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other. I think this verse is often misunderstood. We read that as though we have two battling natures within us, two equal natures. We have the old nature that makes up half of us, and we have the new nature that makes up the other half of us, and we're like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and eventually you get the sense that we're given in to Mr. Hyde more than we're, we're acting according to Dr. Jekyll's standards. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you have been born again. You are a new creation. You have a new nature. You have a new heart. Yes, sometimes you go back. Those old desires are still lingering, and you go back and live according to your old nature, but that's not who you are anymore. You have been given a new nature that wants to love God, to walk in his ways, and to be near him. That's why, this is, you know, this passage, there's nothing defeatist about this passage. It's a passage of victory over sin by God's grace. And that's why he says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you have a new nature. Well, what makes all this possible? Well, here's where the key to the whole passage is. It's in verse 24. It's what Paul calls the crucifixion of the flesh. This is the key to understanding this passage. It's the key to understanding the book of Galatians. It's the key to understanding where righteousness comes from for the believer. Paul says in verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit because... Our old nature was nailed with Christ to the cross. It was crucified at the cross with Christ. We are a new creature because the gospel is true. You know how the book of Romans goes. The, The first five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul in great detail, in great depth, explains all the nuances of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gets to chapter six and he pauses and he says, I know how you must be thinking. I know that because Salvation is by grace through faith alone, that your sins are forgiven in Christ, past, present, and future. You're thinking, what's to keep me from still living in sin? What's to keep me from living any way I want to live now that all my sins are forgiven, even the ones in the future? And so he says, beginning in chapter 6 of Romans, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's unthinkable to Paul that you'd be given the freedom to pursue holiness, to be like Christ, and that you would choose to therefore go back and live in the old, dark, wicked, enslaved ways of sin. He goes on to talk about our self-image later in the chapter. He says, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, let me get to the point here. What he's describing is what I'm calling relational righteousness. Doing the right thing, being good because of who you are, born again by grace, and whose you are. You belong to a risen Lord, and it's because of your love for him. In the book Desiring God, John Piper talks about pursuing holiness in relation to the relationship. He compares it to the relationship between a husband and wife. And he puts out a scenario, and he says, very simple idea. He says, if a husband were to come and say to his wife, must I kiss you goodnight? 
Now, I know how any wife would probably respond to that, but what he says is how a wife should respond to that question is, you must kiss me goodnight, but it's not that kind of must. It's not that kind of must. What he means by that is that when you kiss your wife goodnight, it had better not be to fulfill some kiss quota, your quota that you've got to fulfill for the day. It better not be to check it off on your list. To say, okay, kiss my wife when I left for work, kiss my wife before we went to bed. I've done my duty. If that's what you mean by you must kiss your wife, then you've missed it entirely. What the wife is meaning when she says it's not that kind of must is that you must kiss your wife because that's what healthy marriages are made up of is love and commitment to one another. And if that kiss does not represent love and commitment between the husband and wife, it's meaningless. And that's what Paul's saying about obedience. You've been born again. You've been given a new heart. You love the Lord. Must you obey? Yes, but it's not that kind of must. The legalist says, you must obey the law, or God will not accept you. The antinomian says, I've been saved by grace. All my sin is forgiven. Why should I obey the law? And Paul hears both of those gross errors, and he says, you both don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what happens in the gospel. He changes your nature. You died with Christ. You've been raised with him with a new nature that loves Christ. How can you not love the image of Christ in his word? How can you not want to do the will of God, which describes the very character of Christ? That's why Paul says in verse 13, let me read that for you again. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You hear what he's saying there? What he's saying there, an unbeliever does not understand. Makes no sense to the unregenerate heart. What he's saying is, we are free to serve. That's foolishness to the unbeliever. But those who have a new nature know that there is far more joy and pleasure and satisfaction in serving Christ and obeying the will of Christ than there is in the ways of this world and the sins that used to enslave us. There was an important development in my relationship with my wife. Any new relationship, you're always insecure. Am I going to be able to be faithful to her? Is she going to be able to be faithful to me? So much adultery, so much infidelity. Is this going to last? And that fear characterizes all our hearts early in a relationship. And I remember the insight that the Lord gave me Pretty well into my marriage, I finally realized, you know what? I can be relatively sure that my wife is going to be faithful to me. Not because I'm such a worthy husband. And not because she's such a great wife that she wouldn't ever do such a thing. But because she loves Christ. And I know what her relationship to Christ means to her. And she's not going to trade that for a few tawdry moments in some hotel somewhere with some guy. Because she loves Christ so much, it's unthinkable. You see, that's relational righteousness. That's what all of our obedience should be motivated by. Not because we must in order to be saved, but because we must because we love our Christ so much. 
At Oakwood, we preach Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. And so our pursuit of righteousness, and I want this to be a holy church. I want the reputation in this community to be that those people are godly people. They are righteous. They are holy. But I want it to be a holiness that is driven by a love for Christ, not by legalism. We reject legalism and we reject antinomianism because we love Christ. And you know the thing that's beautiful about that is that kind of holiness, that kind of righteousness in a church is a humble righteousness. It's not an arrogant self-righteousness. And it grieves me that too much of the world, when it looks at the church, that's what it sees. It sees a legalistic, self-righteous, arrogant righteousness that's rooted in the flesh and not walking by the Spirit. When love for Christ is what's driving our holiness, it's a very humble righteousness because it's driven by our incredible thankfulness for what he gave to us, what he did for us, what we owe to him for all eternity. How do we respond to the sins in our culture? Do we respond as though the law is the answer to their problems? That's legalistic righteousness. Or do we respond to the sins, and the sins in our culture are awful, but do we respond to them as though fitting in is really what needs to happen in order to get the truth to them? That's antinomianism. No, we need to respond to the sins of our culture, no matter how dark and depraved they are, we need to respond as though the cross of Jesus Christ is the answer. And our attitude should reflect that. What does this look like practically? It means drawing near to Christ at every opportunity. It means being faithful, showing up consistently, whether you feel like it or not, to be in the word, to be in prayer every day to being in worship and sitting around the table and receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and spending time in fellowship with God's people. These are means of grace. This is how the Holy Spirit leads us. This is how the Holy Spirit feeds those new desires of our new nature to make them stronger, to inflame them, to fill us with love for Christ. It's through the word. It's through prayer. It's through worship. It's through the fellowship of God's people. You can't take some shortcut around those things. It takes faithfulness in those things. That's what connects roots in God's word to the fruit of loving obedience to Christ. I'm going to close with chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Listen to how Paul talks about his own self-image here. He says, "For For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's relational righteousness. That's being good because of who you are and whose you are. It's serving the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our antinomianism. Forgive us for our legalism. Father, thank you that you've given us new hearts, new desires, a love for Christ that can produce the kind of fruit that will bring you much glory. 
May, as we preach the gospel, may that kind of righteousness accompany the words of our mouths, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.